But yeah, I was like, oh, I learned that at, at GearBuds. I feel like uh, I don't know. I feel I feel warm. I, f- I think everything sounds good. You guys want you guys want to do a podcast? Yeah, let's do uh, let's do this new episode. Absolutely. Dude, yeah. Guess what? Guess what episode it is? <laughs> Say it, Beavis. <laughs> Episode sixty nine <laughs> of Gearbuds Podcast. Right on, <laughs> and we are here in all in our respective domiciles. This is this is Henry, and you've got your other Gearbud Dave, Ayo. and we have a special guest with you this week, Mister Anthony Gravino. What's up, dude? How you doing, guys? It's good to be on. Good to have you, man. Thank you so much for being with us, and we are very excited to have you on and talk about all the really cool music you make and production and mixing and amazing stuff you do. But before that, we're going to dive into our usual segments here, and we will get started with the Symphony of Corrections. Here is your weekly reminder that cables are tone tubes. Thank you to listeners far and wide. Uh, It's been awesome hearing back from you lately, and we're super stoked to keep doing this for you every week. Follow us, Instagram, Gearbuds Podcast, Facebook, subscribe, Spotify, Apple Podcast, Podcast, Yodcast, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I've been keeping up to date with the uh, GearbudsPodcast.com slash free stuff, Uh, so check it out there is uh, a actually I, I feel like waves made this free at at one point in the past and i downloaded it then but there's this waves berserk plugin right now which is just this, like yeah it's crazy gnarly. nasty distortion uh that you can download for free and uh links up there and then as well as i don't know this might have been a time sensitive thing but ik uh multimedia was giving out their svx amplitude plugin which mm-hmm. is just like a ampeg svt uh plugin that i think sounds pretty pretty all right and it's free. I don't know, Dave. Did you check it out? Because I can't. You know what's I, funny? I, I've had it. I had it already, but I feel like it might have expired. I'm not sure. I was gonna uh, download it this morning, and then it just kind of ran out of time. So yeah, I didn't get a chance to. I hope it's still free because I'm actually yeah. uh, recording some bass <laughs> uh, right now. So I'd like to use that. Sweet. Yeah, check it out. Uh, we actually have a correction for the Symphony of Corrections. Wow. Uh, not, you know, I'm not convinced that it's because we get more stuff right these days. I'm convinced that it's actually because I'm lazier when it comes to editing. <laughs> uh, but I do have to say that. So I couldn't last week uh, when we had our good friends Josh and Max from Hand Practices on. I could not come up with the composer's name for the you know Super Mario Brothers and Legend of Zelda and all that stuff. And it is Koji Kondo, of course. So. Apologies to all my video game fans out there. Uh, bad fucking ideas subsegment. Um, this is actually kind of a good fucking idea, in my opinion. Uh, I, I don't know if you guys saw this. Yeah. There was the first socially distanced concert out in the UK this past week. I saw a picture and from it. It looked. It's yeah. uh, It's it's an interesting idea. They they have like everybody's got their own little like stage platform type thing to you know out in the out in the admission area there. Yeah, you know, I mean, it was out in this big old field. They limited it to 2,500 people. It was in Newcastle, UK. Some guy named Sam Fender, who's this, like, singer-songwriter dude, played. Um, I, you know, I've got to be honest, as a, as someone in, in my mid-30s, uh, the idea of being able to go and sit at, uh, like, music <laughs> fest like that seems pretty fucking good to me. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like you get your own little, like, VIP section almost or something with you and your you and your close friends who have all tested negative for COVID, so tested negative five per pod i was just like man i don't know like i the only of course the only the only major downfall would be if you are one of the people that's all the way back behind the sound booth and you can't see a damn thing yeah from, from back there they went really far but out with these things they did yeah. but i don't know i mean if that if that's what it takes to be able to see some some live music which i think we're all sort of hankering for right now i'd do it mm-hmm. yeah 
Yeah, I agree. So good, a, good fucking idea. Cool idea, man. I mean, peop, I hadn't, you know, thought of something like that when we were talking a few episodes back about like, you know, what could we kind of do to get to get things moving? Um, little sectioned off, you know, little uh, little mini stages that are elevated off the ground are kind of nice, you know. Yeah, hell yeah, just a just a good just a good fucking idea. Uh, this is sort of a thing we've been tracking for a while now, uh, pun intended. But uh, one of the things that we've all been kind of trying to figure out is this being remote how do we like jam in real time again thing yeah uh, without being in the same room and of course uh anybody that's tried it knows that there's just the latency can be real bad uh, but i just heard about this company called elk audio um making something called aloha which they claim to be the solution for this that we've all been looking for wow. it's you know uh, designed so that like like we're talking about I all three of us could be playing different instruments right now and if we have the proper sort of um, recording hardware to, to get that sound to each other with their setup you can do that in real time uh, the sort of caveat being that um, and this is I think sort of what we've all expected would have to happen but it's it's not only is it software it's also hardware that you have to get um, yeah, it's not sense. out in the world yet and there is an open beta starting in q4 of 2020 but basically it's so, some sort of hardware interface with software that can run on smartphone tablet pc and then uh, in real time with your you know video cameras and whatnot as well you can you can jam and they showed they showed some examples i don't know that it was really using their hardware if it was sort of simulated but from what i could see in the videos it seems like it might work man Hey, I'm, I'm open to any ideas at this point, man. I think, I think, you know, that's been the big thing since this quarantine is like, how do we have a live, a live rehearsal or a, you know, even a live recording session would be amazing if we could all do that from different houses, you know? Yeah. I mean, it, it, of course it's, it's sort of stuff, something like this feels kind of time sensitive and limited to the, the time we're living in. But the more I think about it, I, I think it's actually viable long term oh, yeah. there there is still going to be a desire for people to be able to, to collaborate in this way even when there's a vaccine and we're not as worried about transmitting this all this shit that's in the air right now yeah absolutely man i mean people have been recording remotely for you know a couple decades now at this point sending each other files back and forth and layering it and sending it back and that kind of stuff so i guess you could you know you could say this would this would continue to be a huge product if they could really get it get it to be truly live you know yeah so I, I signed up for the for the beta. We'll see if uh, cool. we see we'll see if we get invited in. I don't know, Anthony. Have you have you tried doing any sort of like remote uh, real time collaboration at all? I have not. I've we've done simulated versions of that, but they were not yeah. done in real time. That because of the things that you just described being sort of at this point not insurmountable, I guess, but really challenging. I think. It is. It is. I remember being in in the my early naive days of of the quarantine, thinking, "Oh well, if we just like get on Facetime together, like yeah, of course, we'll just be able to jam." And then yeah. the reality of that, we tried that with in. Zoom. It's like, oh, yeah. this is horrible, it's awful, man. Yeah, Zoom. Yeah. We tried it with Zoom, and it has like that audio, it like audio <laughs> clipping thing. If you even try to like talk over each other, it just completely oh, yeah. mutes both parties. I'm like, well, this isn't gonna work. Um, you know, the funny thing I did do with Zoom though, I I was able to share like. Spotify or YouTube with friends and we were able to watch a video together. I don't I'm sure there was a, a microsecond of a lag or maybe even a half yeah. a second. But for the most part, we were watching some like Leonard Skinner concerts, you know, three of us. I was just sharing a screen and it seemed like we could all see it and, and listen to it pretty, pretty realistically. So that was kind of cool. Yeah, that but, makes sense. But to play I mean, anything under 10 milliseconds is usually fairly imperceptible. But the the, pro the problem, of course, with playing is that it has to go from an analog to a digital signal and then 
and then that gets sent out rather than just like being the digital signal everybody's sharing. So that's where the, the main amount of latency comes in. But mm-hmm. uh, supposedly Elk has figured this out. So I, I hope they have because they could they could definitely move a lot of fucking units right now. <laughs> no shit, man. Do that. Yeah, that would sell out quick. Uh, sweet. Last thing, as always, we've been trying to remind you, go to saveourstages.com if you haven't already. A lot of actionable stuff you can do there right now to get uh, some of your friends and, and family and the ones you love who work in the live sound music production industries, uh, some, get some legislation through the government. So saveourstages.com. Yep. And that brings us to my favorite part every week. And I got to ask, Dave, have you been have you been listening through and hearing the sweet little effect I add? Yeah, yeah, I've heard it. I've heard it on a couple well, of them. Yeah, man. It's I, are you doing the same one or are you, are you changing here it? Here it each? comes. Dave's Docs. <laughs> uh, no, dude, same one. It's just the same little goofy delay patch uh, that I put together that That's, I just automate in and out when I say that. Oh, I love it, man. Yeah, that really makes me feel what special. What do you got? Well, well, so I got something good this week, man. And, and, and I like that you're adding the effect because I feel like since you started doing that, I've stepped it up with the quality of these these actually these films that I've been watching. Um, you really well. Not only the quality of your films, but I got to just toot your own horn a little bit for a second. I feel like your your insight and reviews have grown. Uh, oh wow! As well, thanks, so. man. well, you know, it, I, you no know, pressure. Dog. I'm not a I'm not technically a movie critic. Otherwise, I would probably have a movie podcast. But um, you know, I <laughs> I do enjoy I do enjoy watching the watching uh, documentaries about bands. So this is a great one, man. I I can't recommend this one enough. I think you've probably heard of this band. I've never actually heard of them because I'm you know not quite as in depth. Um, but have you heard of a band from the 90s called Brainiac? Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. Dude, that's so funny. My buddy just mentioned that he watched. It's on Amazon, right? It's, so there's a movie on Amazon called Brainiac yeah. Transmissions After Zero, and it's free on Amazon yeah, Prime. Dude. dude, fucking awesome. First of all, it's a, it's a really well done documentary. I mean, they go they go start to finish on the, the lead singer um, and songwriter, uh, Tim Taylor was his name. They, they really cover like his whole background. The Tool Man? Yeah, I know. It's the easy joke there, but yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Burn. I know it's like eh. I was waiting for you to say that actually um, dude so they're from Dayton Ohio you know he grew up with a very musical family his, his both his parents were musicians um, basically was born with a you know an instrument in in his hand and played drums bass all that stuff through high school really always was like this standout kind of uh, you know um, really like a larger than life type character even when he was a kid and um, I, I, dude, I, I honestly, I went and listened to this band. I didn't realize like they influenced so many bands that we listen to today that I specifically listen to. Like, you know, I mean, at the drive-in was like hugely influenced by these guys. Totally. Um, they didn't bring it up in the, in the doc, but I think they sound a lot like death from above 1979, like that really angular, really aggressive vocal, heavy, yeah, heavy, angular post-punk, thing. heavy distorted bass, angular post-punk. But you're talking, I mean, their first record was like 94, I think, or something. 93, wow. 93, actually. Um, Smack Bunny Baby, which I listened to this morning. And, you know, they play it throughout the movie, but I listened to like the whole thing in its entirety. And it's fucking unbelievable, man. I really, I, you know, it's not like every day where you stumble upon a band from the 90s, like from when you were, you know, starting to really get into music and then be like, oh, shit, I got to add this to my list of like, you know, maybe top, top 20 all-time favorite bands now you know i mean abs- holy shit yeah dude dropping bombs dropping big big notes man um <laughs> you know so yeah they, they basically just started as they were kids and they kind of blew up they started touring with um you know they were in that 90s scene like i think the bass player was even friends with like billy corgan at some point so they were kind of kind of intermingled in that got to play those parties you know um bands like shellac i think they they played with when they were really young oh, um, my fave 
Yeah, I know. And I was like, so this is cool. You know, everything's going along really great. They had people, you know, and then obviously we know the whole record label thing back in the 90s was like, they were just, it was like a gold rush to like, you know, make a song, sign a band, give them millions of dollars, and they might never do anything after that ever again. Mm -hmm. Um, They had people throwing money at them, people as big as like Interscope Records, like offering them millions of dollars, and they always held out. They never were like, yep, okay, we'll sign with you guys. They really wanted to wait for like the perfect deal. But they knew how to get schmoozed by these guys or take them out to dinners and parties and buy them hotel rooms and all that shit. And uh, they just, they literally were doing their own thing. They never gave a fuck about writing like anything that was too poppy or writing stuff that was for other people. In fact, to the point where where the songwriter was like, you know, if he came in with a new song, the band would be like, oh, that's great. It's actually got like some nice pop to it. I could hear that being the hit. He would he would just literally like take it and tear it apart and go back and bring it back the next day. And it would be completely <laughs> different, like all different melodies and everything. Um, so he would deconstruct his own music if it sounded too popular, basically. Um, and then uh, unfortunately, in 97, he uh, he was in a fatal car accident and they never actually got signed. They never, I mean, they were signed to smaller labels, but they never actually, you know, hit the big time. And um, it really did this kind of knee jerk reaction for all the members in the band and all the people who were fans of theirs uh, when that guy passed away. And then it's kind of neat. It kind of ends with them doing this um, tribute show in 2017. And, you know, they have different singers from, you know, different bands come up and the band gets back together and plays all these songs. So they do like this whole performance. It's really, really a great, well-rounded doc. Starts great. Ends great. It's kind of sad, but it's not too, you know, it's not too depressing or anything. It's really a fantastic one. So I can't recommend Brainiac the band, but uh, also the movie Transmissions After Zero enough. You know, I would give it five out of five transmissions for sure. Ooh. Yeah, absolutely. Getting back to the 100% scores. Uh, what, I think you said it, but I might have missed mm-hmm. it. What's, what was the record you listened to this morning? Uh, well, I listened to two records this morning. Uh, Smack Bunny Baby was the first one because that's their, that was their first like record they put out. And then um, Hissing Prigs and Static Couture was one that came out like three years later. And that I think that one like started to get on MTV a little bit, you know, like 120 minutes. They show some clips from that show. Remember like Matt Pinfield and all that stuff? Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, dude. So they showed they showed like a music video from that. But they never hit that that big time fame, you know, which a lot of the bands in the 90s did. They kind of, you know, it was funny, man. It really made me think like the 90s was really a time for bands that were really trying to be truly, truly original, I feel like. You know, they were all taking influences from people, but they weren't afraid to to reach outside of 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 those influences and really try to find, you know, other other crazy shit. So it's um, possible. Yeah. So fucking loved it, man. I, I'm going to be listening to more of these guys for sure in the future. And I I, that. I figured you've probably I mean, I was like, oh, Henry's got to have like one of the records on vinyl or something. They just seem like right. I, you up know, I don't No, I, I do. I do like them. The um, old bandmate and roommate, uh, John Zoxit, friend of the show, uh, <clears throat> he was super into them. Uh, and yeah. so I just like sort of by by his influence uh, as a bassist, I think part of the reason you like them so much because they're such like a big nasty bass. Sound oh, yeah. To their music. Yeah. They would just uh, put distortion on everything, man. It was crazy. They just didn't give a fuck. Yeah. So. Uh, so, yeah. Sick, I'll, dude. Yeah. I'll turn Great it back over to you, man. Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, is it time for the riff library? Yeah, baby. Okay. Well, for this week. This morning I listened to actually this this is a record that I've I've loved for a long time and was reminded very recently by uh, my songwriting partner and your former bandmate Mock 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 at Groblings on on Instagram and that is 2006's Age of Winters by The Sword. 
Oh uh, yeah. Which is just like a total, I mean, I, I honestly, it, I, it might be the most true to title of this segment riff library of any of the records that I've <laughs> talked about yet, because it is just like a fucking riff fest, dude. That whole record top to bottom is just badass riffs one yeah. after the other. Yeah. Yeah. He's played, it's, uh, he's played that for me before, man. They're fucking, Oh yeah, dude. This yeah. is, it's their first record, uh, band out of Austin headed up by this dude uh, named JD Cronus. He, um, I mean, there's a band, but he's kind of like the main songwriter, singer, guitar player, dude. Um, this record's on Kamado records. Like I said, came out in 2006. If you're into the whole sort of like modern Sabbath, high on fire, doomy stoner thing, <clears throat> this is definitely required listening. Uh, also I, as I was listening to it, I realized that, um, first of all, I first heard about these guys, which is maybe sort of embarrassing in hindsight to to admit to, but uh, they had a song in Guitar Hero 2 uh, back in like 07 oh, or nice. something, and that was when I sort of like first even was like, who is this oh, awesome yeah. band? <laughs> Although it's kind of goofy because that was still in the era when they would just like re-record the masters of stuff with this like cover band, so it's not the actual Sword song that I like got into, but then of course, you know, went and bought the record. Um but they, I didn't realize, like in the in the sort of inter, intervening years, they've been on like they've toured with Metallica. They've played like really giant tours and stuff. Oh, wow. I never realized like kind of how how big they got. But um, yeah, it's just like really awesome riffs. I think the song Freya was the one that was in Guitar Hero. There's another really badass song, uh, Iron Swan, the first uh, first track inside too. Uh, also, the I've got to call out the artwork. It's, yeah. it's just like super beautiful Art Nouveau. Um, like almost like those, uh, uh, what you'd imagine Baroness covers sort of look like. Yeah, kind of like those old, like the, uh, Conan the Barbarian uh, books, you know, I forget. The yeah, name, yeah, like the almost sort of like the Frank Frazetta thing yeah, that you're talking yeah. about. But like it's it's very, you know, lots of beautiful flowing line work and, and always focused on sort of like these like ethereal women. Um, but the album's awesome. The artwork's awesome. Uh, I'll throw it in the, the the old Riff Library Spotify playlist that we've got running here. Okay. Oh, and the last thing I'll say about it, um, actually, you know what? I've got two more things I'm gonna say about it. First of all, like if you if you want to hear what a Les Paul into an Orange sounds like, this is mm. that. Like mm-hmm. if you've ever like, oh, I haven't been able to play that rig before. Like I can say with certainty, having having played that rig and like listening to this record, this that's what that sound is for the most part. They also tuned down, I think, to see. Um, but they were, unfortunately they were supposed to be on tour right now, which I didn't even know was going to be a thing, but apparently there was this Primus tour that was scheduled where there, it was like a, a, a Primus tour, but they were celebrating Rush. So I don't oh, know cool. if they were playing like a bunch of Rush covers or whatever it was, but the sword would have been out on this, on this tour right now. Nice. Um, also, you know, as I'm looking at this cover right now, I'm realizing that the sword has a very distinctive band logo and I feel like that's a lost art. Yeah. Like I, I can't even really think of too many modern bands that have just this like specific logo that's been their logo since day one and that they still stick with. I agree. Uh, So, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do a little, a little question for the, for the audience here, the audience being, being Dave and Anthony, what's your favorite band logo? Dave, you first, man. Oh, wow, man. Oh, geez. Um, I know, I know what yours is. You're not, you don't even think about it. I mean, obviously like, you know, Zeppelin is pretty, pretty high up there for me. Oh, I was going to say the stones, the tongue. Well, yeah, that's cool. I'm, you know, I'm, I don't think that's my favorite logo of, of them. I'm kind of, maybe it's just so like you see it everywhere. I would say that's probably, probably the most recognizable band logo of all time though. I will give them that. Um, I I liked, I I was like the Zoso, the Zoso uh, Zeppelin thing. Yeah, I got to agree. Yeah, yeah, do you have any great. good ones off the top of your head? You know, the only one that comes to my mind, and it's not necessarily because I love it, it's just because 
it just comes to my mind is the Metallica logo. Oh yeah, dude, right. That's, the, yeah, that's their their original, huge. just like the way that they wrote that word, and then that had like the little jagged edges on the M and the A. The M and the, the A, yeah. yeah. I just remember that being very iconic on the record store shelves in the late eighties and early nineties. They me. never really, ch- they never really changed that too much. Did they? I mean, they, they did, sp- they did in the nineties in the load era, they sort of like lopped the, the weird jaggies off and made it just much more sort of nineties looking oh, okay. with like a vaguely tribal ninja star. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. Big time. But, tribals. Yeah. I honestly, the, I, as we we're saying this, I turned around and looked at my record shelf and, and I saw the metallic one first. I was like, yep, that's it. That's like that's my favorite band logo that's right there. That's a good there. one, man. Absolutely. Wow. All right. Same page. Well, that's a, that's a good little segue into the next part of the show, which is um, a couple two tree randos. And Anthony, this is where we just ask you a couple two tree rando questions. Um, so let's get started there. If you could swap places with any band member, any band, past or present, despite your skill level or theirs or anything like that, who would that be and why? Wow. That's a, that is a vast one. Um, <laughs> let's see. <laughs> Um, let's see. Uh, any band, any time. I, I would. It's s- funny how how people sort of work their way through this. Sometimes it's like I want to be fucking Bach. Yeah. And sometimes it's like I just want to be someone that isn't going to ruin my favorite band of all no. time, but I can just yeah. like hang out and play tambo. Exactly. I, I don't want to be Bach. I, he, I feel like that was a hard <laughs> a time to live. That was a tough time to be alive. Yeah, that's we a good point, man. Even even True. the even the like best of musicians at that point didn't have it very good. I was thinking more like maybe I don't know Jim Morrison or something like that. He did I think the yeah. Doors, you know. So you want to be the Lizard King, all right? Something, uh, so, someone very different from myself, you know. And and that era would probably oh, be the sure. era that I would really like to to have been of age in. You know, like the, the I feel like the '60s into the '70s was just a great time to oh yeah man be you know trying to to be a professional musician. There were a lot of gigs. There was money in the record business. There were a lot of great musicians and, and there were a lot, just, there was just a lot more excitement around music at that time, I think than any other time maybe in our history. So I agree, man. It was very, uh, experimental. You could get away with doing just like wacky shit and people were like, we've never seen this before. This is so crazy. Well, yeah. And a lot of the record label executives back then were musical people also, you know, they were, they were people who got into it because they were originally into music for one reason or another so that they were more apt to say, yeah, let's take a chance and spend some money to try this new sound or this new thing. And everything was kind of new in rock and roll at that point, you know, Mm -hmm. to a certain extent. So there was a lot of, uh, just money being thrown at, let's try this and try that. And a lot of bands got signed and didn't make it. And, and a few did and you know but those bands are still iconic to this day to us all like we all know yeah. who, mm-hmm. who the doors and jim morrison are right and it's timeless or the beatles yeah. or led zeppelin or any any of those bands and so there is something there was something going on at that time that to me i would have loved to have been able to be a part of um dude as nicely a, articulated answer yeah i like oh, that thank you it's a good one I, i'll also say that now we have uh in this particular uh part of a couple two, two true randos we now have two band members of the doors that have been claimed uh it occurs to me that mr that's james beasley from downbeat studios decided he wanted to be ray manzara yeah so, so we almost uh, have a full band that's great we almost have a full band of, <laughs> of guests here uh hopefully somebody's real into uh nobody's gonna pick uh, robbie, krieger. robbie krieger no nobody's gonna take densmore though that no oh, densmore was a beast 
And he was he's probably one of the most interesting members of that band trying to throw jazz beats on everything, yep. which they had to teach him how to do the four on the floor right. if if Oliver Stone's Doors movie is to be believed. Well, yeah, yeah that, uh, there's probably a lot of uh, liberties being taken there. But I do, exactly. I do think that there was generally he was kind of the outsider of the group in terms of like he was always kind of trying to pull it one way and yeah. the yep. other guys were trying he to was, pull yeah. it. He was, yeah. Rock and roll way. wasn't rock and roll really wasn't his thing, you know, and they had to kind of show him show him the ropes. Yeah. Sweet. That was that was Doors Talk for the week. Uh let's go to the next question. What was your first concert? I mean unless you saw the doors for your first concert and then we'll continue. <laughs> now we know how old you know. are. No, it wasn't the <laughs> yeah. doors. I wasn't born yet when Jim Morrison <laughs> passed away. My first concert was Chuck Berry in Macomb, what? Illinois in nineteen eighty eight at a uh college basketball arena. Wow. Yeah, my dad took me to that concert. Um do you do you have do you have actually do you like remember going and seeing it and stuff? <laughs> oh, absolutely! Yeah, I still have the ticket stub. <clears throat> oh, that's I still awesome! Have the, that's I still awesome. have the ticket stub to almost every concert that I've ever attended. Whoa! I am very jealous of that. That's impressive. And and, and also, I have to say or, or ask, how annoyed have you been since now tickets are almost always entirely digital and you don't get tickets anymore? Oh yeah, I don't like that. It's really lame. I, I don't like that. Right? But, yeah, because I I mean now then my collection just sort of gets you know. <laughs> Uh, it was just they're always a cool memory of of the moment you know and it, it's kind of time stamped in the way that it ages and the way yeah, that's so cool you know the way that the tickets looked at a certain time and i have some really interesting ones i think the best ticket that i can think of that i have is this band godspeed you black emperor oh yeah raise um, your skinny fist i went and saw them right around the time that that, that album came <laughs> out actually early 2000s at some point and uh, I went and saw them, and they had this ticket that I would bought at a record store. It was just like a, almost like a handmade work of art. I don't know how to explain it. It was black paper, and it had this great artwork on it, and it was wow. big, and it was you know much larger than a normal ticket. But yeah, I'm Do glad. Do you have I saved them like them. displayed or or stored in like a cool way or anything? Not at all. I have them stuffed in a Manila or in like one of those you know yellow envelopes and just oh, yeah. like clasped shut and it's just like in a drawer somewhere you know wow but but every time i get a ticket which is rare and rare especially now but you know i i always make the point of going and digging out the folder and putting it in there you know okay here's another one yeah you know i i, I too have, have saved tickets for a long time i don't have every one but i'll just say it you know i i've thought about ways of of trying to like sort of properly display them the best that i can come up with is something sort of like scrapbook but because you want to be able to see the front and back do it in like a you know a clear like sticky sort of uh sleeve on each <laughs> or if they have like those cards. uh like that plastic used for like baseball cards like if you could just yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's what yeah. exactly that'd be perfect <clears throat> You know, just floating it out there as a as a dude with a lot of time on my hands right now, uh, thinking <laughs> through stuff. Uh, do you do an impression or accent? No, oh mate, there okay. it is. <laughs> there it is. You did it. That's oh, Liverpool, not really. right? Not congratulations. Really. Yeah, <laughs> Manchester no, I, or Liverpool. Yeah, the I'm closest not sure. I can get is that because I worked in a in an Irish pub for a few years, and that's not Irish. Don't. But there were a lot of English right. that came in there too, and so. Sure. I heard a lot of English and Irish accents, so I actually think I heard more English accents there because my boss was English, and uh, so I I can do a little bit of that. Nice. nice. Well, thanks for thanks for playing along. Absolutely. Uh, here is a question from our previous week guest that we've already mentioned, Hand Practices from here in Chicago. Uh, they want to know what's the weirdest thing you've ever done in your sleep. 
Hmm. Um, this was a tough one because of course I, I can't help but think about the answer myself and I honestly couldn't I couldn't come up with anything. Uh, I yeah, have from like, the, the weirdest okay. thing I've ever done in my sleep is thrown out my back. Oh, oh. yeah. What happened? Well, I don't know. I was in my sleep and I woke <laughs> up and I was like, oh, what's wrong with my back? And at some point I must have, you know, twitched or jerked or turned or did something. I don't know. I, did, I didn't feel it when it happened, but I woke up and I was like, oh, I definitely hurt my back while I was sleeping. Wow. Well, I'm sorry to have uh, brought up such a shitty memory from <laughs> you. Dave, have you ever done anything weird in your sleep, man? I was just thinking about it when you were saying you didn't have anything, and I was like, aside from just having like weird dreams or something, I don't think. I mean, I've done the, you know, drunkenly, like, you know, pissed on, like, in a hallway or something like that. Yeah. But that's more uh, alcohol-induced, you know, when I was in college. That's just college. Yeah, that's yeah. just college living. Um, but no, I, you know... I've definitely woke up with like really bad, you know, sore, sore back or sore neck type of things. But you do wonder what what happens, you know. But you know, my parents actually told me that. Uh, now that we're talking about this, it reminded me that I don't I don't remember doing this, but my parents told me that one time when I was very little, probably like five or six or something, uh, in the middle of the night, or they were just like still in the living room and I was in bed already, and I just like walked out into the living room with my blanket wrapped around me and didn't say anything to anybody sat in front of the tv and started playing nintendo that's so and creepy. and i and i don't remember like it was very it was very much a sleep nintendo situation yeah that's that's creepy dude the sleepwalking thing is really it really creeps me out man because I, I remember one of one of the boys from last week said that um they had a sleepwalking thing and yeah dude i i had a roommate that sleptwalked and it was just it was like you'd have this like ghost zombie thing walking around your, you know, your house at like three in the morning. So, uh, yeah, no, no, thank you, sir. No, thank you indeed. And then uh, last question, which is what should we ask our guest next week? Who's your guest next week? You're not allowed to know that. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's what makes it fun. Well, Just assume that it's somebody in the in the larger musical world. OK, OK. Um, OK, I have one. Who is a record producer who you will listen to an album just because they produced it? Ooh. Awesome question. Which means that I now have to ask you who who yours would be. Mm -hmm. Oh, mine is uh, Nigel Godrich. Yeah. You're in the right, you're in the right audience right here, my friend. Yeah. He's probably just the one where his, his albums have just over the years always hit me in a certain way you know and you have to wonder i mean of course he's a super talented dude i mean that's proven but like how much of that is the fact that he's obviously most well known for all of his work with radiohead yeah i mean i guess the albums that i think about with him though that are even that are on that same level are like his the beck albums that he did yeah and uh he did a paul mccartney album that in my opinion is the best paul mccartney album ever like, Which one? I, Was that the Fireman one? No, it's called Chaos and Creation in the Backyard. Huh. Hmm. I don't think I've ever listened to that. Oh, it, it's incredible. It's an amazing album. And basically what happened was, as I understand it, that Paul showed up with his whole live band that he plays with, who's all, you know, it's living legends and everywhere yeah. in that band. And they did one day, and at the end of the day, Nigel said, well, you can either tell the band to not come back and we can make this record together or I'm done which is a pretty gutsy thing to say to Paul McCartney. Whoa. And yeah, yeah. Uh, Paul said, okay, let's do it your way. And that, so Paul plays a lot of the instruments on the album. He plays a lot of the drums and guitars and bass. And there's a, there are other people on the album too. James Gadsden plays drums on a couple songs and he's just like magical. 
And uh, it's just a cool album. It's just it's my favorite Paul McCartney album. Oh, dude, dude love that! You're talking to a couple of Beatles fans, uh, fanatics here that yeah. have a new Paul McCartney to listen Absolutely. to. So that's pretty rad. Yeah, Thank man. you. Thanks. All right, well, that's a that is a a great start here. Let's uh, let's keep it going. Um, why don't you take us back a little bit? Um, so, so I mean, I know you, you've mentioned McComb and, and such. Where did you? Is that where you grew up originally? I grew up in Monmouth, Illinois, which is very close to there. It's a small mm-hmm. town. Okay. And uh, 30 miles north of Macomb. And then I went to college in Macomb and I, I started playing music when I was maybe like 13 in Monmouth and was in bands and then was in bands in college and was in actually a kind of a regular jobbing band in college to play bars on weekends. And then at some point I just kind of realized like, okay, this is just, this isn't going anywhere. You know, I, it's, this is going to be yeah. the same in five years as it is now. And I just decided kind of on a whim to move to Chicago because I had a friend who was here who had an extra room. So I moved up here and started playing in bands and I toured in bands in the 2000s. Uh, I played in a band. What uh, what instrument were you playing? Uh, mostly guitar. Um, and I sang a little bit too back then. Uh, I played in a band called uh, Oh My God for a little while. Uh, oh, cool. Played, yeah, I've, I've definitely heard you guys. Yeah, I know Billy. That's awesome. Yeah, Billy O'Neill was the lead singer. And uh, I played in a band called Temple of Low Men in, from Champaign, Illinois, and just played in a bunch of bands and toured around a lot. And then in the late 2000s, I got into, I, I bought a building, the building that I'm in right now in Logan Square, and uh, started a studio here, sort of just a home studio where I started working with people and just kind of grew it over the years. And, you know, after a couple of years of that, I had a pretty steady client flow. So I kind of went full time to doing, you know, engineering, recording, mixing, uh, producing, mastering, all kinds of stuff. So that's kind of where so, I'm at now. And then that's, and that's called the Drake studio, right? It's called the Drake. Yes. Cool. And so uh, were you do before you decided to <clears throat> sort of dive in and, and do the, the studio owner thing, were you, had you, had you had any previous experience recording in other studios and doing that sort of thing already? Yeah. Uh, I had, I had a home rig for a few years before that, that was, you know, I just was mostly just working with my friends and stuff like that. And I had worked in studios with bands that I was in. That's, that's where I got my first experience was, you know, as a musician playing. So I, I had been in studios quite a bit at that point and started acquiring my own equipment and kind of getting the idea of like, Oh, what, what's my aesthetic? What, you know, how do I like things to sound? How, you know, and mm-hmm. just kind of, kind of evolved my setup since then to, to be more tailored to the way I like to work. And, and I've got to say, as someone that has, um, you know, perused your, your gear list on your website, the, the fact that you sort of call this like a home studio makes my, my, my butthole pucker a little bit, because <laughs> I mean, it's just like the, the amount of, the amount of truly, you know, world-class and desirable gear on that list, you know, API 1608, a whole bevy of Neumann and Coles and Bayer and Neve and Manly and all this crazy stuff. Like it's, it's, I mean, it's an amazing amount of outboard gear. So I'm, I'm curious, like, um, what, it, was that sort of the the aim originally? W- w- were you trying to make this a very analog specific type feel? Because I mean, of course, I also noticed you've got all the the Pro Tools and all the converters and all that kind of stuff too. Like, was it was it was the initial sort of idea to make it an analog setup, or what, what, did that sort of evolve over time? I mean, there was never a notion to to record any other way than digitally with Pro Tools for the most yeah. part. But but the idea being that 
there would be an analog front end to it that was more like a, an old school studio, you know, with a console and good mics and some cool compressors and EQs and stuff. So, um, yeah, I mean, I definitely always have felt more comfortable manipulating analog hardware. I think if you get really good analog hardware, it sounds better than digital. That's just an opinion, but you know shots fired but i mean i think i mean you, I think you just have to you to have agree. to get yeah. what works for you you know you you really do yeah. you have to find what works for you and and use it so this is kind of what i've settled on and it's a hybrid between the the two that i think gets the best out of both worlds you know and i have clients some clients that just want to have me record on tape you know and it's all mm -hmm. analog that's not a very big portion of my clients but yeah. it's nice to be able to do it you know and for me it's nice to be able to mix on a small nice sounding analog console just to stem some things out and get some control right under my fingertips where I don't have to be pushing a mouse around. And, mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, certain analog equipment that I own just really sounds great. You know, I mean, there's some of these old compressors and, and my old plate reverb and tape delay and stuff like that. Like those things just have a really cool sound. So I like totally. to, I like to try to have my own tools that are just sort of like what it's kind of, I've gone through a lot of stuff over the years and, this is sort of what I've settled on. It's your own personal curated collection, which is frankly yeah, incredible. Uh, and, and I do want to kind of dig into some of those pieces individually a little bit, but I want to go back to something you're saying. And it reminded me of something I was having a conversation yesterday, actually with a, a good buddy of mine who's also a studio owner. And we we're talking about this sort of notion of the analog versus digital thing and, and sort of where that comes from and what drives it. And, and something that he said that he's, I don't know if I'd say concerned or worried about, but something he's noticed is that, uh, despite the fact that, you know, it's so much more about, uh, your ears and, and your experience and your technique and what you can hear. He, he's, he's afraid that sometimes there might be this sort of idea that you can't hire somebody and expect professional results unless they have a big desk mm. and all the, you know, classic 1176s and all that kind of stuff. Have you experienced any of that? Do you, do you find that being a reason people reach out to you or is it more sort of driven by the body of work that you already have in the world? Well, that's, that's tough to say. I, I, I think there are a lot of very well-known, well-paid mix engineers now who do it entirely in the computer. So oh, yeah. it's Andrew not, Shep it's not to say, mind. yeah, I mean, there's a, the list is a mile long of guys who have converted. So it's not to say that that's not a valid way to do it. Um, my experience is just that I can get there faster and it's more fun for me to do it with a hybrid mm -hmm. of both um, where I have certain tools that I know that I can go to in the analog world and I can really fast get something where I want it to be. Uh, that's important to me because speed is important to me because as, as you work on a song over time, if you're doing a mix or whatever, uh, you start to lose um, objectivity, you know, and you need to like hold on to that. So it's important to move fast so that you maintain your objectivity throughout the yeah. process. That's a good point. And so Very having the analog equipment allows me to, to work that way. And to be quite honest, on, on the albums that I record, I record things very aggressively, quote unquote, as some people would describe it, in that I go for the sound that I want right there. Yeah, the you make choices. I'm not going to do too much to it later most of the time. Okay. You know, and so um, that way is also sort of a philosophy that, that comes from analog recording. I mean, when I started it, the first records I made were on tape as a musician in a band, but I was also involved mm -hmm. in the production. So I knew how the equipment worked, you know, 
And so I kind of have that in my head still, just like, no, you need to record it onto the tape, how it's supposed to sound. <laughs> you know, that was just sort of the philosophy. And then also yeah. you're, you're building on a more solid foundation if you're doing it that way. Absolutely. Uh, so you, this sort of carefully curated collection, as many C's in a sentence as I can get, uh, are there maybe like two or three pieces that you find yourself, no matter what the sort of style or uh, purpose of the recording or whatever, are there a couple things that you find yourself using every time, no matter what the project is? Well, for, for recording vocals, uh, I always use my... Uh, U67, Neumann U67 into my um, past uh, Mike Pre EQ, which is a, a Neve clone. It's a Neve. It's actually made with real Neve parts by a guy that used to work at Neve. Oh, wow. Um, and is then that like a 1073? It's more like a 1081, which is the four oh, okay, band yeah. EQ, class AB right. version. Uh, beautiful. Yeah, UAD just came out with a version of that. Yeah, it's a beautiful sounding microphone preamp. Best microphone preamp I've ever heard in my entire life. And the, and the equalizer on it is just lights out beautiful. And uh, and then I use a, usually use a Yuri LA3A compressor. So pretty much if I'm recording a vocal... 90% of the time, that's what's going to do it. If it's a lead vocal. Uh, mm-hmm. Is that, is that about the tone? Is it about sort of like the, the control? Is there like a, is there something you can point to about what it is about that sort of uh, collection of, of signal chain gear that makes it special? Well, the microphone is just a beautiful sounding microphone on voices. You know, it makes people sound really good in their headphones as well, which is very important because they feel like, yeah. oh, wow, you know, I'm really hearing myself in 3D right now. Yeah, it's like a better performance that way, right? <laughs> exactly. And and then, you know, the sound of the mic is just great. It's it's really versatile. It's good on a lot of different kind of voices. It's not sibilant at all, but it's very clear and feels like it's right there. And the microphone preamp that I use with it just is a really beautiful, smooth, open, but still full sounding mic amp with a nice high pass filter that I can use on it. It's actually the mic mm-hmm. amp that I'm recording my voice voice through right now. I'm not using the normal. Oh, you're, you're putting us to shame this week. No, I'm, well, I'm using the SM7 to record my talking. Oh, that's, me too. Nice choice. That, that's just what I do when I, for broadcast stuff, but I'm using the past mm-hmm. mic preamp. And then, uh, and then I, on, I like the URLA 3A because I can just use it to just subtly control the vocal or, you know, you can do kind of a lot of compression with it too if you want to. I don't do that too much when I track unless it's a really slammed vocal, but yeah. Um, so that's just the chain that I just know if I put up whatever the singer that comes in, it's probably going to work and they're probably going <laughs> to like it and I'm probably going to like it and we can just get on with getting a good performance. Nice. Well, you, you've heard it here first, folks. If if, uh, if you want to get a good vocal sound, get a 67 and do a 1081 and do an LA3A and you'll be pretty good, in pretty good and spot. Refinance right your house while you're at it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, have you had any, cause I mean, obviously we, you've got a lot of sort of like the classic big names, but do you, is any of the stuff that has sort of made it into your daily driver rig? Is there any stuff that you feel like is kind of overlooked in the gear world that you actually get a lot of use out of? Um, hmm. let me look around here and see. Uh, well, you know, I think maybe it's not overlooked, but it's just not talked about enough how good of a mic a sure sm57 is you know oh. um yep it's just yeah, a really good microphone i mean if you know what you're doing and you have an sm57 and a good mic preamp like you can make a cool sounding recording it's not my first choice on a lot of things but I, it is my first choice on some things and uh it's certainly very versatile 
and not very well that's i mean that's a great thing to talk about and something yeah i mean pretty much everybody has one somewhere or maybe a 58 or which is basically the same thing uh did you is there anything that like what what would you always recommend someone use it on i mean obviously there's some of the sort of like main ones like guitar amp or snare or something is are those is that where you would typically throw a 57 yeah guitar amp snare drum uh one place it's good that a lot of people i don't think think about is acoustic guitar in a dense mix hmm. because I'm if you don't want the acoustic guitar to have a lot of bottom end but you need it to have some jangle and cut a little bit through a denser mix um it's nice it doesn't sound good by itself but it sits in the mix right. in a way that is uh just work sometimes so I've, you know, I had luck i'm gonna try that. that that's an awesome tip hey, do you do you just do the normal sort of like uh you know aim somewhere around where the body meets the the neck 12th fretish area well the way that i usually uh mic acoustic guitar is to put on headphones in the room with the player and go up and have the player play and move the microphone around until i find the spot that it sounds good in the headphones to me yeah. so well it doesn't use your ears folks that's the thing <laughs> yeah Definitely use your ears. Here's another, and you sort of mentioned preamp, like good good preamps, and 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 sort of kind of combining that with a microphone. And, and this is something another thing I've been thinking a lot about lately. Do you, uh, how important do you find like within the signal chain and when you're recording drums specifically, how important do you find the preamp itself? Is it is that kind of like a make or, make or break thing, or do you feel like it, the the microphone is a little bit more important in that particular uh, in like recording instance? The microphone is always more important. Uh, the microphone is the first uh, thing in between the actual source and the recorder. Mm -hmm. So it by far has the most influence on the sound. Uh, um, you know, microphone preamps, they're important. I wouldn't have a, an API 1608 if I didn't think having good microphone preamps yeah, was important. That's you for know? Sure. So yeah, when I record drums through this console, it, it's got a sound, you know, it's, it, it, you can't get it with like, you know, cheap microphone preamps. Um, but is that to say you can't make cool recordings with cheap microphone preamps? No, you can kind of, you can use, you know, even a fairly cheap mic amp isn't going to like ruin your sound. It might, yeah. you know, might not do you any favors. I mean, the place where I really notice the difference in sound in mic amps is on singing most uh -huh. and, and maybe acoustic guitars too. But for example, the API mic amps that I have in the console, I don't like as much as the past Neve microphone preamps that I have, the outboard preamps. They sound a little smoother on vocals. They're less sibilant and uh, mm -hmm. it just it has the same clarity without a little bit of the sort of bitiness of the API that occasionally spits out a little sibilance. Um, but you know, as opposed as for a lot of sources, I couldn't care less if I'm recording a tambourine or a guitar overdub or a, you know, I mean the APIs to the Neves, the pasts, you know, it's pretty similar. Uh, yeah. Certain sources though, like vocals, I can definitely hear a difference and I have a preference. Totally. And I, I mean, in, in fairness, like the, if the baseline is a 1608 console, like, you know, you're, you're, there's not, you can't do bad work with that thing necessarily. Oh, it's going to, exactly. it's going to, it's right. going to get the job done. Yeah. The um, console sounds great. I mean, I, I've, I've actually replaced all the op amps in it now <laughs> with uh, really, with a different kind of 2520 op amp, which I did some testing on the stereo bus of the console using these other op amps. And 
I just sent blind files to some friends of mine. Here's mix with these op amps, and here's the, and then I just pulled the thing out, put the other op amps, put it back in, and printed the same mix. And uh, they all picked these other ones. And so <clears throat> I've literally changed. I haven't changed them all out yet, but most of them now are changed. So. Cool. There's a little trick for you 1608 owners. I think uh, that's the same uh, one that they've got at Palisade with our former guest, Joey Peven. Mm-hmm. Joey Peven, Correct. I should say. Yes. Yes. I know. Uh, I know Joey. Well, you're in good company. Yes, uh, nice so one of the, one of the finest, frankly, fine gentlemen. Uh, I wanted to ask, uh, as I sort of perused the, uh, the, the Drake, uh, Instagram, uh, I noticed a cute little kitty. What's a kitty's name? Well, uh, the new kitty is Roebuck. And awesome name. Yeah. <laughs> he just arrived about two or three weeks, three weeks, almost three weeks. Now. Oh, cool. So actually today is the three week anniversary of us getting the cat. Oh, so happy anniversary, Roebuck. He's a two and a half month old little ball of fire currently sleeping in the closet. Thankfully. Oh, awesome. Uh, he's a good dude. Yeah. He's like, you gotta, you know, having a, having an animal that's cool in the studio is, is an asset because it diffuses situations. It puts oh. people at ease in a weird way. Uh, a good studio dog or a good studio cat can just come into the mm-hmm. room and somehow everybody just feels a little better about things. And, you know, they're, 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 they come up and just people kind of are at their best when an animal comes yeah. around. I totally agree. That makes me so happy to hear that. And you're talking to a couple uh, cat lovers and cat owners here. So, yeah. uh, man, you know, it kind of reminds me of uh, the, the cat who's, uh, well, the last cat is the name that's, the name is escaping me that lived at empty bottle and how oh, it was always such a treat to be, oh, yeah. uh, to be, uh, to be blessed with the presence of, of some rubs by that kitty. Yes. I want to know. Um, so we've talked about, you know, you and your history and your studio and everything, but I'm curious, like I, I went through the list. And in fact, as someone that went to school in Champaign and played in bands down there, I recognize a lot of names on, on your sort of discography list, but are there any projects that you've done, at your studio that you feel like are you're super proud of and kind of hang your hat on and, and you would maybe uh, drive our listeners to check out if they're thinking about checking out your studio? Yeah, sure. A uh, couple come to mind. One would be the band Hood Smoke, and the album is called Congratulations, Mr. and Mrs. Wallace. Okay. Um, that one is really good. And then there's a, an artist by the name of Ari Hest, and the album is called Against the Sky. No, sorry, not against the sky. That's wrong. Uh, the album is called. Is it? Hold on, I gotta look. Yes, it is against the sky. I, I, he just, I just got it in the mail, and there was, Ooh. there was some. Uh, at one point, it was named something else, but anyway, it's a great record. Gotcha. Ari Hest, against the awesome. sky. Um, both of those albums were recorded pretty much exclusively here, at my studio, and then I mixed and mastered them as well. Uh, and those are. Those are both really cool records. Great, great. What is it sort of generally about them uh, that you that you're that you're proud of that you think turned out well? Well, I think that it's it's kind of the same band on both albums to a certain extent in in terms of the rhythm section Mm -hmm, um, who are just they're just these great players who just are so amazing in the studio and. And they, you know, the uh, the two songwriter Ari is this is a songwriter, and then Brian Doherty is the lead singer and bass player of Hood Smoke, and he's kind of the songwriter in that band. And then he, you know, we've got these great musicians playing with him, um, and they were cut 
pretty live for the rhythm tracks, you know, with like four people playing all at once and we would keep the whole take most of the time, not very much editing. Uh, and just guys that can just come in and interpret charts really well, really fast. And so the music has a really nice feel. There's a lot, of, not a lot of it is to a click track. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, there's there's just a lot of live. There's a couple on on the Hood Smoke album. Congratulations, Mr. and Mrs. Wallace. The first song on the album is the first take of the first thing that we played after I set up no the mics. Way. Is oh. that you know the guitars, bass, and drums? We kept it. That was that's what starts off the album. So you literally hear the first thing that the band played on record you know for the session is the first thing on the album so oh, that, that's that, magical that's that insane good i do feel like a lot of the times that's like the best take you know when everyone's got the energy a little bit of nerves you know you're just not sure and uh those those just have the most come out sometimes you know well that's the thing about having guys that are that can interpret music so quickly so well mm-hmm. like that is that you can get that first take without a mistake you know, without yes. some something that derails it, because you're you're right. Oftentimes, a, a first take will start and it'll feel so good, and then you'll get to like the second chorus, and somebody will do something that just throws yep. the whole thing <laughs> off, and then and then they stop, you know, and then you've lost that mm-hmm. basically. Well, right. You know? I was going to ask you about that. Like, what what's your take on you know making a small mistake and then maybe just leaving it in a record? I mean, do you think there's an importance to the overall song if if there is a tiny flub in there, or if or if there's a simple way to to correct it? Well, I'm not against leaving small imperfections as I like to call them in there. Um, but there's a, you know, it's all to taste. So for me, it'd be like, you know, well, can I live with that or not? Or same with whoever played it or whoever wrote the song or whatever, you know, and a lot of time people just can't live with it, you know? So, but the thing is, is when you get really prepared, good musicians all together, it, sometimes you can just like, Oh man, they just, that's the first time they played that. And it's, it's it. (laughs) You're done. We're done. (laughs) Uh, and so I like to try to capture some of that. I think that some of that is lacking in a lot of records that I hear today. Um, it feels a little too manufactured sometimes to me and not Mm -hmm. enough, just like there's a vibe going on. And I think talking again about the sixties and seventies and stuff, you know, there's so much vibe on those records and a lot, a lot of it is because there was a lot, they played together, you know, exactly comes off with this swagger to it, you know? I totally agree, man. Yeah, it's it's hard to find many records these days where they're not, you know, you can tell they're kind of pieced together and stuff like that. So it's nice to hear that that live kind of. Now, do you try to get like a live sound? Like if you're recording a, a band, let's say three or four guys in a room, I mean, do you, do you open up the room mics and do you want to let it, you know, breathe a little bit or do you kind of keep it, you know, pretty, um, pretty in line? It just depends. Um, you know, and those two records are, are are tight sounding i guess is how i would describe mm-hmm. them they're, they're not dry but mm-hmm. like you know the drums and bass and acoustic guitars are pretty tight and punchy and um i like rich sort of fat warm sounding things you know but still maintaining clarity uh so um it's it's hard to say you know like roomy I, you know, I have this great stairwell here that I use for kind of roomy sounds on drums and percussion and stuff. And, cool. and then oh, yeah, I have the, the Headley Grange uh, Zeppelin drum. Sound. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, <laughs> I guess. And then I have a plate reverb, like a real EMT two oh, really? plate reverb, which oh. I, and, and then I have a spring reverb unit that has a small and a big spring in it. So I've got these analog sort of, um, you know, reverb sort of room sound simulator kind of things that I really like to use. Um, and so it's just every song is different. Sometimes you want a tight, punchy sound that's drier, and sometimes you want a big, 
you know, open sound and mm-hmm. just like kind of let the song tell me. Yeah. I'm curious. Uh, you mentioned earlier just the, the notion of click or no click. And I'm curious, not necessarily even as a, a, a songwriter or performer yourself, but more so from the production mixing side of things. Do you have a great preference between mixing something to a click versus not? Um, no, I, I don't have any hard, fast rules when it comes to click tracks. I'm, I'm very conscious of what the click track is doing to the feel of the music in my mm-hmm. perception at all times. Sometimes I feel like it's helping and sometimes I feel like it's holding it back. And so if I think it's helping, I want it. And if I think it's holding it back, I don't, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, within, within the same record, it can flip back and forth four times, you know? Oh, this one feels great with the click. And then the next one, it's like, no, we need to be able to like pull back on the bridge here or something, you know? So exactly. You just kind of have to listen to the music and let it tell you what you think it needs. And, uh, you know, some, some players are more comfortable with the click track than others too, you know? Um, so you have to take that into consideration as well. Totally true. Uh, I want to ask you, so uh, in fact, I think, you know, for somehow, somehow, despite our years being in the city, I had never crossed paths with you until recently, but really the, the way that I even first sort of came across your name, I think was there was this, um, pretty cool, uh, benefit compilation that came out here in Chicago recently, um, that actually, I'm pretty sure we even talked about on the podcast, maybe a few weeks ago. Can you tell us a little bit about that and sort of like how you came to be involved with it? Uh, sure. So that's uh, situation Chicago is a project put out uh, by my friend Trey, who runs a, a not-for-profit called uh, Quiet Pterodactyl. And he approached me originally to be the mastering engineer for the project. And oh. he said, oh, I've got this idea, you know, I want to do this double album release. I got up some really cool artists who want to be involved and, and I just need somebody to put this all together for me. It's going to be a lot of songs and we need a digital master and a vinyl master. And so he came to me to that and he hadn't filled out all the slots yet on the record. And so I said, well, Hey Trey, you know, can I send you a couple of my songs and see if you think, <laughs> yeah. you know, you want to put one of them on there? Like I don't, one you know, it's cool if you're not into it, but, and so I sent him uh, some songs off my now finished album and uh, he picked that one. He said, I love this song. Yeah, let's put this one on there. So that's how that came about. And, um, Trey's done a great job. Uh, getting the word out and he got some great artists. He got uh, Jeff Tweedy and he got OK Go and uh, D. Alexander, a great jazz singer from Chicago. Uh, Hood Smoke, that band um, that I was telling you about the album mm-hmm. earlier, they, they have a song on there. Um, so, it, yeah, it was a cool project. It was it was a lot of, you know, it was a kind of hard mastering project because it's like you get 25 different songs from 25 different producers and artists and they just sound so vastly different from each other you know and then seriously you have to put them together so that they run and make some kind of sense you know and he we you know we just kind of had to figure out the order and um but he had good ideas for the order and we just kind of figured it out in the end i was like oh no this totally makes sense you know where at first it was like how am i gonna make all these songs make sense together (laughs) serious that's a crazy challenge is are the are those so you mentioned mastering for vinyl are those physical copies available to to purchase yeah uh-huh um i think it's situationchicago.com um you can buy the album you can buy the digital download um there's some also some artwork for sale there's some original artwork by the guy who designed the cover who did a great job um yeah, and it's super, all it, and, and all the money cool. goes to um, to a charity, which is going to benefit uh, local live music venues. So that was the whole point of the of the not for profits mm-hmm. beautiful um, awesome. release in the first place. 
definitely a worthwhile cause for those of us that love to see live music. Check that out. And uh, lots of lots of amazing Chicago artists on there. Um, you mentioned a couple times now that you do mastering as well. And, and I feel like generally when I talk to people in the industry or, or on, even on the show, those tend to be sort of like the the recording engineer and the and the mix engineer and the mastering engineer tend to be fairly different sort of disciplines and sometimes even skill sets or mm-hmm. or set, uh, or equipment lists. So like when you're when you're mixing a project versus when you're mastering a project, do you do you feel yourself go through a sort of um, do do you try to enter with a very specifically different mindset or, or are you kind of always pro- uh, approach approaching it from the same angle that you would say something you're writing yourself or recording yourself? Oh, I don't approach it the same way as my own music because I have to take into consideration somebody else's uh, ideas and aesthetic and stuff like that. So it's a different approach, um, but I don't really approach recording and mixing and mastering that much differently from one another in that they're all just like I'm trying to make it sound the way I hear it in my head. And I'm trying to okay. push push it further towards that at every step, you know. So... Um, it's a similar philosophy. It's just, it's all about listening and, and perspective and, and focus over time and having a, a, a clear vision of how you want something to sound and then having the technical ability to make that happen with the equipment that you yeah, have. Right. So part of having the equipment that I have is because of the way that it sounds. And so, you know, it's all kind of related. It's, I don't see them as, as compartmentalized so much as maybe some might. Right. Interesting. No, that's, I mean, totally valid and mm-hmm. super uh, unique perspective. I'm curious from the perspective of someone who does master music, uh, you know, other than sort of just like the obvious loudness things, when you're hearing something that was either sort of uh, mastered by someone at home or using an automated service, are you hearing, do you, are there certain things that you hear where you can pick out like, oh yeah, that was definitely mastered um, sort of uh, by an automated fashion or, or not? Like, is it, is it to the point where there, those things are as nuanced where you can actually hear the difference or do you feel like um, it is kind of more dependent on the maybe source material to begin with? Well, I don't know if I could pick out some, and say something was mastered by an automated thing. Yeah, I, I could pick out and say, this was not mastered well you know (laughs) what would you what would i guess so in that case what would you be hearing like what would what would translate to not being mastered well well there's a variety of things that the thing that's common where if you let an algorithm do it or some mastering engineers do it too is just where it's just overly compressed to my ears too limited to where you hear artifacts of the limiter affecting Mm -hmm. the the music in negative ways to you know um crunchiness sometimes on music where it's not really needed you know sure, uh, yeah I, those are the two things that i hear regularly and and then like that stuff sounds so bad on terrestrial radio because there's another big limiter from the That's radio right, station right. on top of the super limited song so yeah i remember being on tour with with oh my god in in 2008 i think and and we were we did a radio show and th- you know they had just come out with an album and it was a pretty compressed album. It was a loud, compressed album. And we were listening to it. They were playing the song in the radio station while we were right before the interview. And I remember it came to this point in the song where the whole band drops out and, the, and it just goes down to vocals, right, for, for a mm-hmm. couple lines. And, and it was like, that was the loudest part of the song. <laughs> holy shit because of the amount of like radio compression on top of the, yeah. Yeah. how compressed the album was 
And it just like, I remember sort of sitting back in my chair and going like, what, what, what just happened there? That was so weird. <laughs> like, and then the band came back in and it like got quieter. Like the whole, you know, the whole thing got right, quieter yeah. and I kind of had to register. I wasn't really that conscious of what was happening at the time. And I kind of thought about it for a minute. I was like, oh, okay. That's just all the radio compression. Bringing that, that a, vocal that a, way yeah. up louder in that moment when it's actually supposed to be this like quiet moment. That's a firsthand lesson in dynamics right there. Yep. Totally. Wow. There's this sort of, that reminds me, I don't, I don't know if this is true or not, but there was this sort of apocryphal story of Van Halen, Eddie Van Halen, uh, making different versions of their records. And, and then, and because of the, uh, because of the compression happening on radio, he would, he would always send radios an uncompressed ver the mastered version was uncompressed or maybe less compressed than the one that would go to record or, or cassette or whatever at the time, because of that crazy extra level of compression that radio itself adds. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I just got done reading Ted Templeman's biography actually. So you're talking to the right person about Van Halen right now. Cause Oh really? <laughs> he's wow. the guy who produced all their most famous. Yeah. Albums. Okay. And, um, uh, he didn't mention anything like that in the book, but you know, who knows that very well who could knows? be yeah. true. It, it, it could very well also just be like some random mythology that I heard half heard all stoned at one point. <laughs> in my life too, so who the fuck knows? Yeah. I, there was definitely stories of a lot of different people taking cracks at the mixes on like 1984 oh. particularly because they'd moved. They, they stopped recording at sunset sound and Ed had built a studio in his, on his own property called 5150. Yep. And oh, so, they were uh, recording it all there. And I think him and Don Landy were like up in there just doing a bunch of coke, like getting all crazy. And <laughs> oh, yeah. And but th when it came time to mix the record, like literally there was like, you know, rounds and rounds of everybody taking a stab at it. So maybe that's woven into it too. For sure. Um, well, I was curious. I mean, you know, it's hard to get through an episode without talking about it a little bit, but I'm just curious during this lockdown that we've been in and in sort of uh, people approaching creativity in different ways, I'm, I'm curious if there's anything that you've noticed in particular with sort of like recording or mixing projects that have come in. Have you seen any sort of major changes or, or what sort of trends have you seen in the type of work that you're getting or maybe not getting um, during, during this lockdown period that we're in? Well, the most obvious trend is that I have less work now. Um, yeah, right. And that is for a variety of reasons. Um, the, the, you know, there's, it's started to come back. I've kept my mix work going and my mastering work has been pretty much the same, I guess. But the, a lot of the tracking dates got canceled. Of course. Yeah. yeah. I've done a couple just like working with one artist here in my studio or a couple people here, here and there, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but it's definitely just slowed down. You know, the musicians don't have the income from the gigs. So right. they don't have money to put into making a record and, and the labels are don't want to put money into making a record right now. Cause how are you, who's going to go out on tour and support it? And when, you know, like there's so much uncertainty that a lot of things have just kind of come to a standstill. Um, I've been fortunate to be, you know, maybe, 60% as busy as normal right now, I'd say, if I had to quantify it in some way, which is just, you know, fine. It's not mm -hmm. yeah. ideal, but it's fine. Um, but I know a lot of people who are not as fortunate. <clears throat> and so I'm just worried about the ecosystem as a whole of the community right now, because that's what allows somebody like me to have my profession. 
is that there's a healthy ecosystem of live music and people yep. putting out albums and people buying music and people, you know, there's got to be revenue circulating in the whole thing for it to be viable. Yeah. Touring and, so, and all that stuff. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. So it's all intertwined and I'm just worried about that more than anything because there's no end in sight to the moratorium on, you know, concerts. Have you had people like, um, have you had people reach out and be like, Hey man, I recorded this on like, you know, at my, at my home interface and then they send you tracks and you can just kind of help them mix it together and stuff like that. Have you had jobs like that or is it all pretty much soup to nuts at your studio usually? No, I I get jobs like that too. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, might yeah. as well, right? I did a job like that uh, yesterday. That was the mix job that I had basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's, that's maybe like 10 to 15% of my mix work is that is yeah. stuff that other people recorded that I do cool. mix. Um, and, and, and it varies. Sometimes it's kind of like pulling teeth and sometimes it sounds good and you just kind of have to make it a little better. Sure. Totally. I'm in something that I always, because this, that's obviously a, a much larger reality for a lot of, especially mix engineers out there, people doing stuff at home and maybe not always getting it exactly right. I'm curious if you have any tips or, or sort of things that you wish maybe people would keep in mind when they're when they are doing those those yeah. tracking dates at home and with their own sort of maybe prosumer or less pro gear that they have at home. Are there any things that you would recommend to people in that position to make your life better and easier and, and create a better final product when you mix it? Um, don't record it too hot. Uh, yeah, it's just like simple things, you know. Um, just just use your ears. Just move the mic around until it sounds good. Try to make a blend with the way that you perform. Try to use your instrument in your hands or your voice or whatever it is you're using and make that make the track sit in the track, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, don't try to rely on a lot of effects or think that you're going to learn how to use uh, a DAW software like a mix engineer or like a pro recording engineer because it's, mm-hmm. it's a five-year investment of time at least to get <laughs> Yeah pretty good at it you know i mean it's just it takes a long time it's a, it's a lot of technical stuff it's a lot of philosophical stuff so my advice to people is to use it more as a documenting kind of thing and then if you catch something that's like oh this is releasable this sounds good then okay there give it to a mix engineer they mix it and you release it you know um don't be too dear about things either you know i mean that's one thing like people can be a little bit too dear about stuff what do you mean process. like a uh, performance wise or yeah or just or just or just like you know about uh, sometimes people get so obsessed about little things little details right and they're missing the they're missing the bigger picture of, of the situation it kind of goes back to what somebody one of you was asking me earlier you said oh if there's a little mistake in there do you is it yeah. okay to keep it well it's like sometimes yeah just like yeah that's there but the whole thing is cool so the energy is good let's just keep the whole thing because it's cool and mm-hmm. who cares You know, I I have a little bit of that in me, a little bit of flippant nature when it comes when something just works for me. You know, it's like, oh, I don't care that that's the way it is or that it's not. Sometimes there'll be a discussion in the studio about like, well, that note doesn't work, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. you know, from from a theoretical standpoint. That shouldn't sound good. Right. But for whatever reason, be it the timbre of the instrument or the context or both it somehow seems to blend in and somebody's arguing, well, I like that. And somebody else is like, well, it it doesn't work though. It's not right. You know? And like, I'll argue against the, it doesn't work guy all day long when, yeah, if I think it sounds good, cause I don't care about the on paper argument about that. Yeah. Like the, the on paper argument doesn't fly in my 
book. It's all about the ear test for me. I love that. Well, and that's kind of like the classic old thing too. And I've I've certainly been guilty of this myself. Uh, you know, the, the sort of demo dilemma where it's like well, you you make this demo and then you wind up listening to it so much that you sort of get like married to the idea of that's what this track must sound like. Right. When maybe it's more just a familiarity a familiarity issue than like it actually being better than what you're tracking in the studio. Yeah. See, the thing about the demo is, is it's, you shouldn't listen to it too much. The people that you want to make the song need to listen to the demo, you know, yeah, it, but yeah. you just have to resist the urge of, cause you've already got that concept of it in your head. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the demo is there in case you need to reference, like, what was that chord again? Or, you know, but you know, you can, the demo is like, that's how it is in your head already. To me, once you start producing it, then it goes beyond being a demo. Like to me, a demo is like a guy with a guitar singing a, a song, you know, exactly. Or somebody at a piano. I think if you start like, Oh, well we played the band played and then you start took layering a it up a production right. there, <laughs> you know, it might not be a good one, but you still took a swing at some kind of level of production. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's awesome. That's, a, that's, that's a really, one. really good advice. Oh, I was just going to say one more thing. If somebody comes to you as if you're an engineer or you're an artist and don't ever think you're making a demo, like always think you're making a piece of art that could be released because I had an artist come to me to make quote unquote demos and he was going to go do the album down in Nashville with a well-known producer and the demos that I did ended up being the album. So, Oh, that's awesome. You know, it's never a demo when you come in here and you say, I want to make a demo with you in my mind, I'm making your album that day. That's yeah. That's great perspective, and I think I think yeah, we should probably all remind ourselves of that a little bit more too. If it's yeah, especially if you get to the point where it's like, oh, I'm making production decisions, and I'm and I'm EQing and moving things around. Well, then you know that's a that's a production. That's not a demo at that point. Totally, dude, Anthony, it's been so great. That was awesome. Thank you for for hanging out with us and sharing all these super usable tips and and insights with us. Uh, if, um, anybody listening wants to, to check you and your music or, or wants to get in contact with you about, uh, potentially working together in the future, where should we send them? Uh, www.anthonygravino.com. That's nice and easy. Got that, got that personalized URL. Well, Anthony, again, thank you so much, man. It's been awesome getting to know you and and talk to you. Hopefully once, uh, things ease up in this world, we can actually meet each other face to face sometime and, uh, you know, talk crap about preamps or something. I would love that. It was great talking to you, gentlemen. Thank you so much for having me as a guest. Yeah. Thanks. All right. Awesome. Thanks again, man. Well, stay safe and healthy, everybody make good decisions and, uh, you know, don't go see trapped. See you next time.